Hello, everyone. Before we get started, I wanted to have an actual introduction. I just recorded what you're going to be hearing next, which is going to be the official podcast intro. But I wanted to say hi beforehand, kind of unplanned just for a minute, mainly because it'd be weird if it just went from Graham's voice to my voice without any explanation. So hi, my name's Thomas. Nice to meet you. I'm going to be the host of the podcast for the fall semester. I drive up to Gainesville tomorrow, and I'm pretty scared, not going to lie, for both the world and this, which I've done things similar to, but not anything that has inspired me as much as trying to make this podcast work this past week when I haven't, the semester hasn't even started. And I feel like I already care immensely about making it a valuable experience for you guys and myself. I just hope that that we can make something together that is helpful in some way. And I'd love to hear any of your guys' feedback on how to make that happen. Nice to meet you. And here is the official intro. You are listening to The Alligator Podcast podcast where the independent Florida Alligator, the largest student newspaper in the country, discusses our latest stories on the University of Florida, Gainesville, and beyond. Subscribe and tune in weekly on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud to hear our latest episodes on news, sports, and much more. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at The Alligator, as well as find all of our latest stories at alligator.org. Hello. And welcome to season two of the Alligator Podcast. I hope you're doing well wherever you're listening from. Where I'm listening, it's it started raining like 20 minutes ago. So hopefully that's not an indication of how this will go. My name is Thomas Holton, and I'm super, super excited about this new chapter of the podcast. I have a lot of ideas that I'm thinking about and just collaborating with a lot of people at the Alligator already, even in this past week, just about how to make it a valuable listening experience for you guys. So today is the new section of the podcast. And for the first episode of the fall semester and my first episode, we have two very special guests and I'll go ahead and let you guys introduce yourselves. Uh, Hi, my name is Christian Ortega. I was the summer editor-in-chief of The Alligator. I'm now the fall assistant sports editor. I'm Ariana Spiru. I was the summer general assignment reporter on the university section and the towards the end of the university administration reporter. And now for the fall, I'm the university desk editor. And I'm really excited to be on the podcast. Thank you guys so much for both coming on today. And for the people listening, just to give you a brief overview of what this first episode is going to be, We know a lot of you guys are students, and like me, you've been gone from Gainesville since leaving in March for the pandemic. And if you've been somewhat disconnected from what's been going on here, then this pod is a sort of recap of these last five months and what's been going on and just how some of these these massive issues like the pandemic and the fight for racial justice have impacted UF, Gainesville, and the Alligator. So I hope that you can take something from this if that is your situation. And with that being said, my first question to you guys is just, what are your guys' assessments of this entire period, both covering it as journalists and just being regular human beings in it? 
I had only been up until the summer on the alligator staff for a semester. I started in the spring uh, covering lacrosse for the sports section. So just wrapping my head around being editor-in-chief and running an entire paper after only being here for a cup of coffee was kind of, you know, it took my breath away in not a positive way because I was just kind of overwhelmed and trying to understand and, and get everything going right because God forbid, you know, I do something wrong and the alligator name and reputation crumbles apart um, by my own hand. And, you know, compounding that with COVID and covering the protests and getting everything else done in an organized and structured manner while not being able to see the person, the people who I'm working with most at all until the, very, the last day for us was kind of like, it took a little bit of time to really put my head around that and like understand, okay, like how am I going to be doing my job and how can I best do it effectively? I get some of that. I think for me, it was a lot of, I didn't even know what my job was because this is my first time doing reporting stuff. I just started that May when I got the job. I just started doing stories and I didn't really know a lot of what journalism was in the field because this, again, was my first time. So it was weird getting used to journalism in this way of remote phone interviews, just trying to do what I can to get sourcing. Sourcing was a big thing for me, figuring out um, where to find people because I can't go out into someone's office and say, hey, can I talk to you for a little bit? I can't do that anymore. So it was a big challenge for me especially just trying to see how things work like this. It was a huge challenge for me. And you guys touched on a couple of the aspects of this in your answers, but over the entire summer, how did, do you think working remotely, both collaborating with other alligator people and the sources, like you said, Ariana, did that get easier as the semester went on, you think? Were there new challenges that came in late? And how do you feel? Because you guys are both obviously going to be continuing into the fall. Like, what's your outlook on the process of reporting just remotely continuing as it will for the foreseeable future, at least? As an editor, uh, I think that we did a good job getting, making sure that everything was coordinated well and communication didn't fall off. When I picked up this job, rather when I was hired and during my interview process, you know, a lot of the stuff that they that some of the people who were interviewing me were asking me, you know, how are you going to be keeping things going well? Um, how is uh, reporting going to function remotely? And even though our reporters and I, Ariana, you could elaborate on this further because obviously you're the one doing it. Even though they couldn't get that foot in the door and you know, meet someone face to face, I think that the reporting done virtually and remotely. Uh, was phenomenal in that regard because of the fact that we were able to adapt properly. And I think what goes into how the staff succeeded in publishing, I think over 460 stories, just goes into the fact that we were able to communicate with each other very well. At no point, rather very rarely, did we really run into troubles with being able to talk to people and get in contact with other members of the staff, whether or not it was through Slack or otherwise, we kept that up and that really set the tone for the remainder of the semester. I'd agree. I'd say that communication was probably the biggest challenge, but also like the, the thing that we worked on the most, just always updating, like, this is how my story's going. This is um, what I need help with. This is who I'm not hearing back from. Can you help me figure that out? Just things like that. I feel like in the beginning, I was a little bit scared to, not scared, I guess more hesitant to come through with like problems that I was having just because I had never experienced something like this. But definitely once we got used to everything, I was like, listen, this person has not been answering me for five days. What do I have to do to get them to talk to me? I definitely think communication was one of the best things. And I hope that for me, we can bring through for the next fall as well. I'm trying to bring that through with my team as well, just 
if you need to talk about anything, let me know. Definitely. And just an update with the alligator. Christian, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit on El Caiman. For those listening that don't know, it's the Spanish section of the alligator that launched this summer. And I understand that you had like a big role in the creation of that. So just what was what was that entire process like from the idea to the development to the eventual finished product? Well, thank you, Thomas, for letting me talk about my baby. So my understanding was that just that we have this election coming up. And as with all elections, it's important that people are informed and know about who they're voting for. Um, and as we are aware, just because you don't speak English doesn't mean they cannot be able to vote in this country. But there are people who prefer either to read their, new, their news and information in Spanish or just generally struggle with, you know, probably being able to contextualize a second language. Uh, so I wanted to create El Caiman as a way to serve that community and let the Spanish-speaking community within Alachua County have a little bit more of an understanding about what the election is going to be like, who they're voting for, what the politicians are, or can are campaigning for or against. Because at the end of the day, you know, our job is to inform the people. And if we're ignoring a segment of the population because of a language barrier, I kind of felt that we're not really doing 100% of the job that we can. So we started off with having translators come in and translate news stories related to the elections, COVID, UF reopening, anything that we felt was important information that people across the language barriers need to understand. And then from there, Kyle Wood, who's this fall's editor-in-chief, is taking it upon himself to hire out a larger staff and have reporters so that way El Caiman is publishing its own original content because since we launched El Caiman in the middle of the semester, we didn't really have it within our budget to to have you know a team of editors and reporters and translators. So we had to kind of do what we could to get it off the ground and then now let the future generation of, of alligator editors continue expanding this because my dream is that El Caiman functions kind of how the Avenue and sports does where they have their own reporters producing you know great content that could really push the boundaries of what we're doing for journalism. That's amazing. Yeah. And Ariana, so for those listening, next we're going to get into a few of the stories that Ariana was able to do this summer. And we're mainly going to focus on COVID and stories about racial equality and justice, because those were pretty much the defining topics of this summer, and they pretty much still are. Before we get into uh, specific stories, I just wanted to ask you just how it was sort of balancing these two incredibly massive topics and still f trying to find unique angles to come at them from. Yeah, I definitely think that it was really heavy trying to cover these things. But something that helped me was listening really hard to the interviews that I was doing. So if I had someone mention something offhand about something else regarding COVID or certain other racial issues that they were facing, like either as a student or as a community member, I would make a note of that and just see if there's any, anywhere I could go with that. And there were some stories that just didn't pan out the way I wanted them to or maybe didn't get enough sources for. So another thing I really wanted to keep in mind is that there's always another thing to report and I can't do it all. I'm one person. I can't report on everything and tell everyone's story, but I can do my best. And I feel like, honestly, that's what I, I tried to do this summer. Definitely. First story I wanted to, to touch on briefly was the one you published on August 8th. And it was about UF's reopening plan and a union that 
was led by a UF professor that was essentially not satisfied with the plan and was calling for certain changes to be made for the safety of the students and faculty and just everyone at UF. Could you just tell us a little bit about that one? Yeah, so the United Faculty of Florida is the union for, I believe, all faculty in UF are automatically part of the union, but I'm not 100% sure. But a lot of faculty are part of it and actively go to meetings because they have like their own leadership board. And Paul Ortiz, which is right now the president of UFF, basically I spoke to him on the phone and he expressed his deep, deep concern for the health, not only of UF as a community, but Gainesville, which is the surrounding community of UF, with all these students coming back. He expressed that these plans were made weeks ago. And at the time, Florida was having a really big spike in COVID cases. So he said, look, this plan is not what we need right now. We need something that's updated for the fact that Florida was an epicenter for the virus. And these plans that were made weeks ago are not adequate right now. And people are going to die and students are going to die and faculty are going to die. And he just really was expressing those concerns to me. And I spoke to a couple other members of UFF and UFF Still now, I believe a couple of days ago, still released another statement saying how they still feel that it's dangerous and should be changed. And they really do not approve of UF's reopening plan. We're basically a couple days away. And just asking both of you guys, just how do you feel about how UF is handling things in comparison to other universities? I mean, Ariana's done all the reporting on this. I'm just the one that read it over and made sure that we could publish it. But I think, you know, within the constraints of what UF has, they're doing a lot to try and limit things. I like that they're strict about, or rather they said that they're strict, we're gonna see if that's gonna actually be, um, how they're gonna be held accountable to that, about wearing people wearing masks on campus. Um, at the end of the day, you know, just inviting people back to Gainesville and just bringing, you know, mass amount of students back is still gonna increase the likelihood that COVID can be spread and UF for all that they're doing to maintain any semblance of control over the virus on campus, they can't police what's happening off campus. And you know, I kind of feel like because UF has no control over you know what's happening off campus, but they're still inviting people back on. It's kind of like having a pool, a uh, pool with a section roped off, saying that you can't pee in, um, in that section. You know, at the end of the day, it's still going to spread. You can't stop that. You know, I can't. You can't tell me to not invite 50 people over to my apartment right now. So it is what it is. I personally believe that classes should have remained online in order to help the spread, uh, control the spread. But there's a lot of other variables that need to be taken into account. And hopefully with what UF outlined, it'll be at the very least effective in suppressing as much of the COVID-19 uh, spread as possible. I definitely think that that's the same point that I would try to make is that I mean, as much as we stay on UF's toes and just always ask for answers as to what they're doing, I think that they've done a lot to help reduce the spread of COVID-19 going into the fall. But other than what they're doing now, I can't, as a student, I don't, I don't know what else would I would ask for. What I would ask for is for my peers to have that same culture of wear your masks, social distance. And from that, I don't know. I, I am not too confident that a lot of people are I think a lot of people are, but I'm not too confident that it'll be just 100% everyone's going to wear their mask when they need to. And I think that it's not on the fault of UF. They're doing what they can to promote that kind of culture. But I think it's definitely on the students. And it's up to the students not only to keep their own health in check, but also remember that there's a surrounding community around them of people who 
live here full time. They have their kids here. They have their families here who will be affected if they don't wear masks or social distance. That's a great segue because I was about to ask exactly about that. And I think, Christian, you can speak to this as well, just overseeing the alligator as a whole. And the one specific part of the story that I wanted to bring up was with Paul Ortiz and his biggest concern, like you said, Ariana, was the people who live around UF, the on-campus workers, custodians, cafeteria workers. And the actual quote that I pulled out was, he said, people at UF often forget that their actions have a ripple effect on the community surrounding Gainesville. I I mistyped it, but you get what I'm saying. And I think I saw a tweet that had this same sentiment where it was basically saying that the cities that college students go to aren't their own playgrounds. They have many responsibilities towards the larger community that they're a part of, and they have to recognize that. So I was wondering how you guys feel about the responsibilities that the alligator has in covering the whole of Gainesville accurately. I mean, there's a lot to attack with this. I've seen people writing blog posts about how it's unfair that the media is kind of coming after college students in, that who are going to bars and attending parties and all that. At the end of the day, we're doing our job in informing people about what's going on. And it, that includes whether or not individuals want to behave recklessly, because even though we're 20 years old, 24 years old, however you know you may be, we're not invincible. We don't know what the lasting damage for this virus is going to be like. You know, we're already hearing stuff about myocarditis. We're hearing stuff about scar tissue developing in lungs. I mean, I'm young. Uh, I don't want to be having that for the rest of my life. I don't know what's going to be happening. And at the end of the day, it's really not important, not that hard to be responsible. You know, it sucks. The summer has been awful. I missed a lot of my friends. I missed a lot of the opportunities that I would have had. But in the grand scheme of things, I'd rather sacrifice all of that continuously if it means being able to not get sick and possibly not die. So the alligator has a lot of responsibility in informing people about what's going on. And at the end of the day, you know, I don't understand how some people politicize a virus or a pandemic because the greater good of you know, our society trumps that of the policies that are or are not being enacted. But we're just the ones that are here to inform. Like we, you know, our slogan is we inform, you decide. It, it's not meant anything other than the fact that we're just objective observers who are uh, reporting information and spread, disseminating it to our audience. That way that they, they're well informed as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think definitely the fact that what we do is inform like what you said and also the fact that so many students like forget like you said it's not that hard to be safe it's not that hard and most students come here nine months out of the year for four years out of their lives and but people live here people are here all the time they've raised their families here and and I think it's important to keep that in mind and I think that's something that I really wanted to come through in the article just that reminder uh, from Paul that we live, we're here, and the rest of Gainesville is everywhere else. You know, there's there's surrounding communities. There's there's Newberry. There's all of Electoral County. There's Ocala. There's oh, so many other factors into UF that's not just UF that I really wanted to, to emphasize in the article. Definitely. I wanted to sort of group these next two stories together because they're very similar. The first one is a story you did, Ariana, just basically telling people about where they can find masks, where students can get masks, where faculty can get masks. And I just feel like it's important to mention now, if people haven't been paying attention to the stuff the alligators has been putting out or the stuff UF has been putting out. Yeah. 
And uh, I did a, a little bit of reporting for this just because it was dealing with the university and they gave me a lot of information as to how exactly they're tackling both masks for faculty members and for students. So for students, there's enough masks to go around. Like I know that people are trying to rush to get these kids to get masks, but there's enough for each student. They made sure to have at least two masks per UF student. And they're coming in these things called Gator Care Kits that you can pick up between now and I believe the beginning of October. And uh, there's a bunch of places you can pick them up all around campus. You just need your Gator one and a mask to go pick it up. And it includes two masks, some hand sanitizer, and just some other things inside of a bag. And it's just to make sure that every UF student does have access to a mask. And that coupled with all the other masks that UF has bought, I believe they spent $1.1 million on masks together. Masks are going to be available at dining halls. They're going to be available at the bookstore in vending machines on campus, which is something I kind of want to walk up and go see because I've never seen that. And I didn't think I would ever see that in my life. Mask available in a vending machine. So that's going to be on campus as well. And in terms of faculty, UF left that up to uh, the departments and the separate colleges to decide. So a lot of faculty that are going to be having contact like one-on-one -on -one with the public, whether it be in classes or in offices, they're getting N95 masks and multiple disposal masks if they're in a classroom. So that if a student comes and says, I forgot my mask or my mask broke, they have some extra there just in case. I feel that they spent all this money, did all these initiatives to make sure that every student has access to a mask just to limit those kind of problems, especially going into classes because I know, what is it, like 35% of classes are going to be in person. Just going into that, I think that that's what they were trying to do with those mask policies. And yeah, I hope that people take advantage of those masks that are being offered and being sold by UF uh, in order to keep everyone safe. If they do not do that, you wrote another story sort of detailing what will happen if in these small percentage of in-person classes that there are, what, what would happen if someone showed up without a mask and refused to wear a mask that was provided? And you wrote a story about the procedures that would take place at that point. What was made clear to me by UF Student Affairs was that they're not gonna have any tolerance for students not wearing a mask in class. There's not supposed to be any class happening if someone is not wearing a mask. And some of that responsibility is falling onto the instructor of the class to enforce the fact that, hey, this student just walked in, doesn't have a mask on, I need to do something about it. Because it's not only my safety, but it's the safety of everyone else in this class. So from there, the procedure is different depending on what the student does. If the teacher asks the student to put on a mask and they do, there we go, problem solved, class can continue. But if they decide not to, the teacher can ask them to leave. They can report them to student affairs. They can dismiss the class. It's up to the discretion of the teacher. Ultimately, it just sort of depends. There is one option that the teacher can take that can have the student kicked out of the class and have to having to do an educational sanction, which is kind of what you do if like you're caught cheating on a test or something. It's sort of just like an education course telling you the importance of wearing a mask and figuring out why you didn't wear a mask and why you chose not to. I think all of these things in place put a lot of pressure on the teacher a little bit just to make sure that those masks are being enforced. But also it is pressuring students to say, there's no way you're gonna sneak in without a mask. There's no way class is gonna happen. And if, it, if you refuse to leave, then like class is going to be dismissed. You know, there's, there's not going to be a way that class will happen without a mask, hopefully with these guidelines. The story also mentioned the COVID questionnaire that is required for everyone returning to campus. I've taken it, and I'm sure you guys have taken it, and people listening, I'm sure you've taken it. And before we move on beyond COVID, I wanted to get your guys' perspective on that, because I've had 
a conversation with one of my friends about this. And I agree that UF has done some really good things in preparing us, but I feel like the COVID questionnaire wasn't the most extensive. And I've been social distancing this whole time. I did the questionnaire a couple weeks ago. And in that time from a couple weeks ago to now, I could have easily have been inviting 100 people over to my house and breaking every rule. What do you guys think about that questionnaire, the effectiveness of it? Just do you have any thoughts on that? I think the questionnaire had good intentions. Obviously, you know, it's kind of like a small barrier to entry to make sure that people were doing their best, but there's no enforcement of whether or not, you know, what people put in there is true. I followed out within 10 minutes, you know, I was already approved and I could go back on campus. And I don't know what UF's planning was for that. I don't know what the conversations were there uh, for that. I don't know, you know, all the stuff that was considered. I would have liked for it to have acquired negative test result, you know, within from within the last two weeks of filling out that questionnaire. And, you know, you could have taken that test at home. You could have taken it or rather in your hometown. You could have taken it in Gainesville, at Chance, wherever it is you may be. But I believe that, you know, having a definitive proof uh, that you have not, that you, at, the top, at the moment of submitting that questionnaire, you are not COVID positive, would have certainly validated the responses more than just me saying, I didn't come in contact with anybody and that's it. But once again, you know, I wasn't in the room. I wasn't one of the decision makers. That's just my own personal opinion. And I hope that at the very least, there is some efficacy to the questionnaire and you know, something comes out of it. Really be interested to see who hasn't been approved by UF to return to campus and for what reasons those may be. I think something similar to that, the screening process, I guess, isn't that extensive, especially the fact that you have to do it only once. And then that's it. You could have done it two months. You could have done it a month ago when it came out. For me, they let me do it like two weeks ago. I know other people did it before that. So I don't think that it's it's functioning as a, a valid way of, of seeing whether people are going to come on campus with COVID or not. I think that one of the positive thing about things about it is that maybe doing the screening thing reminds people, hey, I should probably check to see if I've been social distancing or maybe I should get tested on my own just because I'm a little bit nervous about this. Maybe that is one of the good outcomes of it, but I think functioning as a barrier for trying to limit people on campus with COVID-19, it's not doing that as well. I also think that if UF could, I would like to, like what Christian said, uh, see someone test negative before they're allowed on campus. But UF, I was able to look into this, UF isn't able to mandate that kind of testing just because they're part of the state university system of Florida. And since not all Florida schools can mandate that testing, like have the capacity to mandate it, they're not allowed to here. So of course I would like to see in other schools, I know some private schools have mandated it, especially with the 50,000 some people that come here. But I think that just having readily available testing for all students, like if a student is like maybe, you know, someone close to me tested positive, maybe I should go get tested. They should be able to very fast and get those results very fast. I think that that would be more effective than uh, what the screening process is doing right now. I, I agree. I want to use this next story that you did as sort of crossover between COVID and police brutality, the continued fight for racial justice, which obviously the George Floyd protests, which I want to talk about next, they created a big push for racial and social justice, the biggest of our lifetime, I would say. 
And I think a big effect of this has been pushing large institutions like universities towards better accountability. Ariana, you did a story about two UF classes that got canceled in the Levin College of Law that were centered around race and policing. So tell us a little bit about what happened there. I was able to see that. I think one of my sources for a previous story let me know that these two classes taught by this professor, Professor Jacobs, would be canceled for the fall. And they were, were, they were notified of that, the students who were enrolled in that class, about one week-ish before classes, give or take a couple days. So not that much time beforehand. They, I spoke to some students who had already bought books for the class and who were really excited about taking it, especially given the events of the summer. Uh, as future lawyers, they were just so excited to be able to learn from this professor, who Professor Jacobs is a well-known professor in the school, has been teaching a long time. And if you ask any like student of hers, which I was able to talk to some, they say nothing but great things about the way she teaches her class and talks about difficult issues like that. So those two classes were canceled because of, I still wasn't able to get a, a concrete answer as to why, because the reason that the law school gave was because the professor wouldn't be able to come and teach them in person. But the law school also had 20 some classes online. So it wasn't that they weren't doing any online classes. And the professor is a little bit older and that's why she, she, wasn't, she didn't wanna come and, and, and do class in person. She's around 60 something years old, um, has a damaged right lung from a, from a previous health issue that she had. So she's very, she's very susceptible for being affected heavily by COVID-19. So her previous students and her future students were like, wait, this doesn't make any sense. Why, aren't, why isn't her class being offered online? And also she requested for the class to be offered online. She put in a formal request, I believe, with America's with Disabilities Association, something like that, that she had to go through officially and make that request. And she did that. And the accommodation that they gave her was you can teach more classes in the spring, but your class can't be taught online for the fall. So a couple students decided that they're going to, you know, pressure the law school to allow her to teach those classes online because of the fact that she's a well-known law school teacher. And she also has taught courses online in the past. She has experience in that. So it's not that she's not able to. She just clearly wasn't allowed to for some reason, which I haven't gotten a clear answer for. So yeah, they organized a protest uh, and delivered a letter to the law school dean and we're really pushing for it. And I believe a couple days ago, we were gonna start working like an update for that, but the classes were allowed to be taught online and those students were able to get those courses back and I believe they've issued out an apology. That's great. Do you think that your story had some effect on them making that apology? I'm not sure. I, of course, I would hope that some of them read it and, and heard some of the student voices I was able to talk to. I was also able to talk to the professor herself and ask about why she wants to teach this class and things like that. So I, of course, I hope that it had that effect, but I also think that it just helped spread the word for maybe other people who didn't know that this was an issue and just sort of keeping that conversation alive and holding some people accountable, such as like the dean of the law school and the higher people in the law school as to why this decision was made. So, I mean, I hope it did, but I mean, I can't say for sure. Going off the theme of just accountability, I wanted to bring up the quote that you ended the story with because it's like really good. It's at the end of the day, you have to judge the organization by its actions, not by its press releases. That kind of sums up the whole, what journalism is basically. And I was wondering how each of you guys identify with that and maybe does the importance of that type of thinking become more important 
in the era we're living through now where corporations and people in power are being pushed like they've never been pushed in a long time to uphold that philosophy? I mean, certainly if an organization, a company, an individual, whatever, you know, word you want to use to describe it, if they are willing to go out and change their Twitter picture to a rape to something, you know, with LGBT thing or blackout because of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, it's more than just, you know, changing your profile picture and calling it a day. It's more than just issuing a press and saying we stand with these individuals or we support their rights or however else that, you know, their PR people want to phrase it. If they're going to be venturing off into that territory, action does need to be done more so than just using words because of the day. You know, people have gotten away with just saying what others want to hear and then not following through. And that's not really, you know, the point of taking action. We're not here to, you know, if you're going to be willing to put your name out there and say, I stand with somebody or a group or an organization, then do something with an action to be able to show that there's a truth behind the words. And obviously people, you know, people, individuals, corporations, organizations have the freedom to do, you know, something like that, or, you know, not even take a stance and remain, you know, remain neutral on the side. You know, that's up to them. But for those who are willing to, you know, do the bare minimum, uh, there certainly needs to be more action done if you're going to be venturing off into those grounds. I definitely think that's something that I had to keep in mind just going through, because what I, a lot of what I got when I was reporting was very PR stuff, like, oh, we're working on it, or we support these people, or like this stance or things like that. But it's definitely important just to, to hold someone accountable, especially if they're a big entity, UF, or like a big corporation, like you were saying, taking a stance on something. If you're willing to take a stance on it, then um, you're opening yourself up to, well, what have you done in the past? And what are you planning to do in the future? And what are you doing right now? to further support that issue or those people that you're saying you support in the beginning. So if something that affects people is, I support you, then I'm going to see if you really support them in your action. Definitely. I wanted to also touch briefly on all the protests that took place in Gainesville. Obviously, the big sort of catalyst was George Floyd. And I remember I really loved the way that we covered the protests, even just like the way the multimedia graphics that were on it. And both of you guys were a part of that in some way. So I was wondering if you could describe what your role was on that day, and then just anything that you've taken with you in three months since that basically happened. Anything you'd like distinctly remember? So Ariana and I were both main protests that had occurred. I was there taking photos, Ariana was taking photos and working as a reporter. I mean, there was a lot to unpack there. I'm just like, as an editor, as somebody who was sending out his staff to go and cover these issues, I'm very glad and very thankful that everybody was remained safe and didn't contract COVID. No situations escalated beyond control. Uh, it was very you know, well or orchestrated, for lack of a better word. We did prepare, in a sense, by buying, you know, some PPE, like goggles, uh, better quality face uh, face masks in order to, if there's any tear gas or anything being shot at, that it would be filtered, filtered out along with vests to, you know, reduce any kind of bodily harm that could come to our reporters. And luckily, we never had to result to that. So I'm very grateful and I kind of hope that it continues uh, for any future protests that occur. But just from my perspective, it was, you know, important to get out there and understand exactly what's going on and covering how that affects the community. You know, it's over a thousand people gathered together to march and, you know, call for action in order to 
have the form that they desire put in place. And I think that we're very lucky that nothing bad came out of it. And because we've seen how situations can escalate and, you know, Gainesville got off well. I think for me, it was, I remember walking up to the, because it started off in the Kipa Park and I'm, a, I'm going to my third year here. I've seen a lot of people gathered on game day or some like gymnastics meet or things like that or even like plaza if they're giving out free stuff like I've seen a lot of people gathered in Gainesville but I had never seen that many people gathered for something like this and it wasn't the cheers that we're used to in like the stadium and things like that it was it was sorrow it was people that were sad it was people that were mourning and and, and mad over the fact that things like this are still happening and, and and it could have happened to anyone that they know or that they've interacted with. That's something that I definitely felt that day. Just the overwhelming fear and also just anger for everything that was going on at the time. And at, when I was there, I was taking photos. I was interviewing a few people. I remember it started off in Depot Park and it ended up in Bodidly Plaza. And then it kind of went around downtown for a little bit. And I remember one photo I took was of a woman who was kneeling down on two knees in the middle of the intersection. I wish I could tell you which, which one it was, but it was in the middle of downtown. A couple of police cars blocking off the streets, but she was kneeling down with both her arms up in the air. And it was just a very powerful photo to take for me. And I believe she was talking about George Floyd and things like that. And there are police officers right next to her. She's in the middle of two cop cars. It was just something that I was... As a as a reporter, I was like, this is this is history. This is exactly history. And and as a person who um, lives in Gainesville and a person who has unfortunately seen some of the injustice that does happen, it was emotional. I got a little bit emotional as a as a person trying to distance myself from the story. But I, you know, sometimes you just it it, it overcomes you. So that's what I remember from that day. I think the the phrase you said was, "This is history," which is something that every so often it hits me. The protests were one thing, and then at various points just throughout the summer, it, it just continually hits me, I guess. And Ariana, you just spoke about one of those moments for you. Christian, did you have any moments like that as editor-in-chief? I mean, take the COVID-19 pandemic and just making sure that we're getting all of that stuff right because of all the people who just simply don't believe the facts and don't believe that this is serious. And then compounding that with, you know, such a major point in this country's history with, race, you know, with racial equality. We, from an editorial perspective, you know, I'm Cuban, but I'm very white presenting. We don't really have that kind of diversity we're working for and trying to get it more included in the alligator staff as the semesters go on. But it takes work. And we try doing a lot with meeting with Black professors and people who can provide the perspective that we require in the newsroom in order to understand how it more effectively cover this. And the last thing I really wanted was for the alligator to be looked at as just a newspaper that doesn't really care about these kinds of issues. It is very important to cover. They're important to get out there. It's important to inform people about what's going on. And we really try doing our part to make sure that we're approaching things with the right perspective. It's why we met with people who are more versed in it. And it's not because we wanted to, you know, be virtual signalers and kind of pander to that side. But at the end of the day, you know, there are experiences, there are, there are uh, parts of people's lives that I, I never grew up with. And it's important to, you know, at the very least, if we don't have that kind of perspective in the newsroom, we're trying to build it. Let's make sure that we're doing what we can to reach out to other people who have had it so that way we're assigning a story where we're telling you like Ariana I want you to write about this I could take away some stuff that we have to have in conversation and say you know maybe focus on these subjects that for the life of me I probably would not have considered 
and you know, as I mentioned before, you know, Alligator is trying to promote more diversity and trying to hide as many BIPOC uh, staffers that are qualified and worthy of being part of our staff as with anybody else. And hopefully that by continuing, you know, progressing our coverage, we will be able to shed away any kind of misconceptions that people may have. That was a great answer. I wanted to do one more story before we wrap up. And it's kind of going back to like the general theme of what we've been talking about, which is accountability. One of the ways that sort of manifested is in a renewed push to get buildings on UF renamed, most notably the Rights Union and the O'Connell Center. And Ariana, you wrote a story about this. So could you tell us a little bit about these efforts to get these UF buildings renamed? So I think definitely this is one of those things that gets brought up every couple years, which is what I heard in conversations while doing this story was this isn't the first time these things are uncovered or just talked about. This happens every couple years. And to my knowledge, students every couple years tell the university, we want this changed because these namesakes that we walk into, that we have our classes in, that we have, like even the rights union, you know, you go in there for preview. What is it? The multicultural affairs office is in there. It's supposed to be a home for students. And outside of that, places like the O'Connell Center and other buildings on campus are meant to be for students. And the way that these students and faculty feel about the buildings is that if they don't accurately reflect the ideals of UF right now, they should be changed. If they reflect any hate, any discrimination, any, any homophobia, which some of them do, just in those names, they should be changed because uh, it's supposed to be a welcoming place for students, supposed to be supposed to foster growth and uh, figuring out yourself. That's what college is. They should be changed. So that's basically what the story was about. It was holding UF accountable for the fact that these names have not been changed despite multiple attempts, despite multiple letters, petitions, and thousands of people signed the petitions. So yeah, it was basically about that frustration of, of wanting them to be named, but still nothing's happened yet. Yeah, and I know potentially renaming buildings on campus was one of the things that President Fox mentioned in the email. It was the email with the whole controversy about gator bait, so that kind of overshadowed that, I think, but it was there. Do either, either of you guys know of like any timeline for that or what that process entails exactly? Or is it another case of it's very insulated and we don't know a lot about what that process is or if it's fair or just the timing of it? I think UF is doing what they can to insulate this process because, I mean, obviously it's all sensitive. There's a lot to go into it. I mean, these buildings are named after former UF presidents, regardless of what you know, people's perspectives on how they handled the presidency was. You know, this is like a big change for UF, and it's nothing that they can just rush to without coming up with the right spin for it, regardless of what position they take. So for the most part, this is something that probably going to be taking a while to get done. We haven't heard anything. We haven't been told anything. And it's just going to be time will tell whether or not any action will be taken or things are going to remain the status quo. Yeah, I definitely think that students now, especially with everything that's gone over the summer, they won't forget about the fact that they pushed for these buildings to be renamed. And kind of like what Christian said, there hasn't been a lot of, personally, I haven't heard of any task force that's been assembled. And I feel like UF would publish that if it's been done. But hopefully sometime this semester, something happens to that regard. And personally, I feel that they didn't give 
themselves a deadline of we're going to rename these buildings by this date or we're going to decide to take them out on this date for the reason of then they would be held accountable to that certain date. But I know that's something that students and faculty both wanted from UF, especially after that announcement of we're going to do it. But the question was, well, when are you going to do it? I remember I was speaking to one professor that was telling me that, listen, if I had the money, I would get up there and pull down the name myself. It shouldn't be harder than renaming the building itself. It shouldn't be a whole process behind it, a task force for however many months it's been and then nothing's happened so far. I think that frustration is really what drove the story and what drove the students then to want it to be renamed. And I, I think it'll keep on driving that, that need for them to be renamed. I hope so. All right, that's it for the stories I wanted to touch on. Just to wrap it up, you guys are both stepping into new positions at the Alligator in the fall. Um, I just wanted to ask, what are your expectations for the semester, for the alligator, for yourself? What are you looking ahead to? What are you anticipating? God, I hope that people are safe. I really do. At the same time, I kind of have no faith that parties won't happen and that people uh, you know, get together. Hell, there was somebody already on the UF page that was asking what bars are open. So that's not a good indication of what the future holds. Um, at the same time, I'm kind of praying that you know, there's some semblance of a football season because I'm going to be covering that. And I would really like to be able to have something to write about instead of kind of just writing into the void and hoping that I could get a story here and there. So there's like, you know, a lot of uncertainty that's going to be happening with this semester, but I'm just going to roll the punches man, and vibe. Uh, I have no control over how people are going to be handling things. I have no control over the football season. I have no control over the future of my classes uh, and whether or not they're going to remain you know, in person or not. So hopefully things go as well as they can, but time will tell me. I think something similar to that, that I hope the positive side of me and the optimistic side of me thinks, come on guys, let's get, let's get together. I know we can do this. Um, we can all wear masks. We can all just try to social distance as much as we can. But in reality, that's not going to happen. There's going to be people, like he said, posting like, where's the party at? You know, what are you guys doing tonight? Kind of thing. And that is going to be a challenge going into the fall. And me personally, as my uh, going into my position now as the university desk editor for the fall, I'm nervous because my <laughs> job gets really hard in like a week when you have free opens. So we'll see how that goes. Personally, I would like for everyone to be safe and wearing masks. And I think I've, I've, I've made that very clear. But um, as an editor, I just hope that me and my team will be able to cover as much as we can and do the best that we can um with this unprecedented time because no one's ever lived through anything like this and i hope we never have to li live through anything like this again so i just really hope that we can do the best that we can and provide that information for people to again like decide what they think i hope so too and before we end if you guys want to let people know where they can follow you on social media plug anything that you want to any final messages now's the time to do that for anybody that's interested, follow me on Twitter at UnofficialChris. The Alligator also has a convenient PayPal link on its website if you want to donate to us because we give you all of our content for free and it takes a lot of work to run this newspaper and a lot of money to run it to publish everything and hire the staff. So please support us. We're doing our best to provide you the best news possible. Do your part and you know, $5, $10 will help anything really. It's all tax deductible please, please contribute. And yeah, follow me on Twitter, please. Yeah, and my Twitter is Ariana and then L-U and then three Zs. It's my first and middle name. But yeah, donate to The Alligator if you can. We do a lot of work. And again, it's all for free. And another thing is wear your masks. Don't go out to bars. Don't go party. 
and just be responsible because you want to look back at this point in history and say, I did the right thing instead of doing the wrong thing. So just be safe. All right. The first podcast did not go horribly. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the alligator podcast. Be sure to subscribe, leave a review and follow us on Twitter at the alligator as well as find all of our latest stories at alligator.org.